The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovito.com. Our sermon text this morning is Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to you as your children We thirst for you um, as a deer pants for water. And we ask that you might be present with us. And that through the encouragement of this word which you've given to us, that we might find hope, and particularly hope in our access to you. So we ask this in union with and therefore in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've begun, has uh, been alluded to several times already, we've begun to look at this prayer that Jesus gave to us as his disciples as uh, both words that we can use, but also a model that we can follow. And uh, so as we begin it, we notice that it is addressed to someone And the point this morning is quite simply, it matters to whom we pray. Uh, There are many who will encourage prayer as if prayer as an action has benefit regardless of to whom it's addressed. Uh, Prayer is not an exercise like running for two or three miles. It's It's not an exercise of you know, or a a discipline like going without carbohydrates for a month. Uh, Prayer is an interaction between someone real. And so Jesus does indicate that it matters, those to the one to whom we pray. Um, We need to pray knowing that we're coming in the presence of the living God, that there is one who, to whom our prayers reach. But we also need to know something about that God. The nature of that God matters. Because what we think of that God, what we think of, uh, you know, how we understand his attitude toward us is going to very much shape the character of our prayers. The first half of the Lord's Prayer, the first half of this sample prayer, example model prayer that Jesus gives us, uh, speaks of, of, of requests that have to do with God himself. But even before that, uh, Jesus wants us to know that the God to whom we make our appeals um, has a very remarkably personal relationship with us. Um, For various reasons, and this is weird, I know, I have a great relationship uh, with the pharmacists at our Publix. you know, when I enter the store, the pharmacy's right there on the right, and if, you know, if they're looking up from their work, they'll wave, and I'll wave. And, you know, I have this, 
this, you know, kind of friendship relationship with each other. We joke with one another. When I have to pick up uh, some medicine, uh, we, you know, we talk about sports or I tease the one pharmacy tech who's about this tall and she teases back. Um, we share our stories together and it's perhaps odd uh, to have a personal relationship with your pharmacist. You can judge me later on that. But what it means is that if I had some kind of urgent need or request, uh, I would be certain that the one to whom I would issue that urgent need would be these people, and that they would care about seeing that need met uh, more than if I walked into a random CVS or something else. To have that kind of relationship opens up a pathway of communication, and particularly a pathway that is wide open when I have a need. And you see where I'm going with that. You understand the depth of relationship, that is how we understand a relationship, is going to impact the ease with which we engage that relationship. And Jesus here is setting the context for our prayers with the flavor of a deep and close and intimate relationship that God is a father. God is our father. He is the one with whom we can have the deepest and closest relationship. To know that we are the beloved children of God is the place where all genuine, passionate prayer begins. It's as God you know, as God is our father, as God is the Christian's father, Christians therefore pray to him as children in need. Not simply as people in need, but as children in need. Uh, this is the one to whom we pray, and it's so critical that we get that straight, uh, that Jesus prefaces his prayer in that way. And so, of him, we need to notice several things. First, that our Father is in heaven. Our Father is in heaven. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Uh, we are going to work our way slowly through the Lord's Prayer, and so these words are where we're going to stop right now. But the first thing to note, that in prayer, that in prayer you are, in fact, addressing God himself. You are addressing the one who is in heaven, the one who is the Lord of heaven, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one about whom we have been reading in the book of Revelation, who's high and lifted up and sitting on a throne. And you say, that's obvious. I know that when I'm praying, I'm praying to God. But you also should be aware that the obvious things are often the things we most easily overlook. You know, we, if we were all honest, well, maybe I should not be so broad, but if I were honest, I would say sometimes in praying, I don't necessarily believe well about the, the things that need to be believed about the one to whom I am praying. I need to remember who this is. I need to know that I am speaking to a Father in heaven. The God to whom you speak is the God of Scripture. The God to whom you speak is the God who himself spoke and brought the entire universe into being. He is the one who is holy, at whose presence Mount Sinai trembled, and whose glory descended in flame and smoke upon the tabernacle in the wilderness. That is the one to whom you speak. 
If you're familiar with the Bible, these references will will be clear to you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, um, just understand that these are some of the most spectacular uh, revelations of the power and glory and presence of God that we know about. You speak when you pray to the God upon whom Elijah called, and when he called upon this God, fire from heaven fell down and consumed a sacrifice on wood that had been soaked to to, to its core. That's the one to whom you speak. This is the God who, who, in whom Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego trusted when they were thrown into a fiery furnace. This is the God who protected them and kept their very hairs from being singed. This is the one whom David acknowledged as a shepherd, a shepherd far better than he ever was. This is the God to whom we speak. This is the God who, who spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, out of the whirlwind of his sovereignty and power and authority. This is the God whose glory itself shone around Jesus as he climbed to the top of this mountain with his disciples with him. This is the power of this is the God whose power raised Jesus from the dead. That is the one to whom you speak. Uh, we get hung up, I get hung up by. Uh, by, by understanding that God is personal, that He is a person, but that He is not one who is bound by human limitations, right? I can be praying and thinking, you know, I'm praying, and right now at this very moment, a million other people are praying. Do I get put on hold? You know, can this God hear with equal care and concern the prayers of millions? Absolutely. He is infinite in His person. To hear a million is to hear one and to give that one his full attention. He is infant and he's omniscient. He knows how to resolve conflicting prayers when one person is praying for rain and another for sunshine. God knows. God is omniscient. He's infinitely wise, infinitely loving. He can sort out the evil from the good, the right from the wrong. There is no limit with him. This is the God to whom you pray. But... This is also the God in whom there is perfect justice. And so what gives us the right to cross his threshold? I was reading recently the book of Esther and this horrible role in the kingdom uh, where Esther was, was living that if you entered the presence of the king and he didn't want you there, boom, he could have you executed. What gives us the right to enter into the presence of the high and mighty God? Well, you know, Jesus assures these disciples of his, and by extension, you, that we can pray to this God without pretense, without fancy words, without invoking just the right language. We can can come into his presence because we're granted that privilege through God's covenant with his people. It is in covenant that God promised to be a God to his people. It is in covenant that God invites us to be his Now, the covenant as it was established in the Old Testament required ongoing sacrifices in the temple to acknowledge the cost of that privilege and to keep the door open so that one who came into the presence of God, one who lifted up his voice to God, would know that he could do so because his sins had been forgiven and his sins had been atoned for. It's by that means that they felt the right to enter into the presence of the God of all the universe, the holy God, you realize that's why it is important. What, that, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. 
We're not just giving magic words. We're not just adding words. We don't have to say the words at all. What we're doing is acknowledging that the only way that we have the right to enter into the presence of this God is a covenantal right which has been granted to us and secured by Jesus giving his life on the cross that his blood was the sacrifice that ended all sacrifice. It was the supreme sacrifice that declared you righteous and that you come before God in all the righteousness of Christ. God receives you in Christ as as if you were him. You have that privilege because of what Christ has given to you. Yes, God is a God of perfect justice who welcomes you into His presence because of the blood of Christ. You come in His name. That is the gift you are given, people of God. Occasionally, as you all know, if you live here, you can go into your backyard or out onto the street or I don't know, into a field, and we generally look east, and we can watch rockets taking off, heading off to space, and sometimes the moon. (laughs) Uh, You know, and I look at that, and I say, somewhere, someone out there has the authority, I know it's not this simple, to push a button and shoot that thing off. Somebody is pushing this effectively button. Now, I don't know her or him, but I'd like to ask some things of this person. I'd like to ask, can I come watch? (laughs) Or my sister's going to be in town. Can you schedule one then so that she could watch it because it's kind of cool? You know, or something. You know, I'd like to ask her those things. But I don't know her. I don't know people who have that kind of power nor do I know them well enough to come knocking on the door, much less to open the door and walk right in and say, hey, could you do something for me? (laughs) Well, yeah, I do. I do know someone in power. And I just find it hard to believe. But it's real and it's true that we speak our prayers to our Father in heaven. Let's not forget that. But as well, we pray to our Father in heaven. That's the remarkable thing that animates not only this prayer, but the entire Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's the heart of Christianity itself. And again, this too feels ordinary. Of course, we have talked about God being our Father since we were this big, if you've been in the church all your life. But Jesus emphasizes this. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, the sovereign Lord of all the universe, this holy God who rules over heaven and earth is by us to be not only called, but known and experienced as Father. (laughs) As J.I. Packer suggested, and I think rightly, that this is so much the core of Christianity, he says that a Christian, the very definition of, of a Christian is one who has God as Father. That's who you are. That you are the beloved children of God. Now, yes, fathers fail us at times, sometimes in tragic and terrible ways, and yet the idea of Father is not lost upon us. We know what a father is supposed to be. He is one who cares for his children. 
He's one who nurtures them to maturity. He's one who's always available for them, who protects them, who rushes to their side when they're hurting, who defends them against falsehood and mistreatment, whose door is always open to them. I read a long time ago a story about the Princeton theologian uh, Charles Hodge in the 19th century, back when working from home was sort of common. His study, in which he did most of his preparation and work, was in his house, and his door was never locked, specifically so his children could wander in at any time and have access to him. He never wanted them to feel, as a father, that they were kept at a distance or excluded. Now, I hear that story. I remember reading that story and feeling like, oh boy, I'm such a failure as a father. Uh, you know, and then I justify myself. I said, well, this is Charles Hodge. He could stand getting interrupted, and his brain was so good, he could get right back to things. But the point is, that is the way God is. As a father, there's constant good, uh, substantial access. A good father is available to his children, and he's available to, their ch to his children even when his children are dirty or disobedient, what does he do? He enfolds them, he embraces them, he loves them and draws them to himself. He doesn't say, go get clean first. And then I'll talk to you. A good father will talk to his children even if they stink. Oh yes, a good father disciplines, a good father wants to nurture his children, yet never out of spite or retaliation, but solely to lead the child to be more like him. And when a child asks his father for something, the father listens and longs to give the child the thing the child desires. All of that is what you invoke. All of that is what you embrace. All of that is where you stand when you pray to God, your Father. This is the one to whom you pray. We pray to a Father in heaven in all the good sense of the term. You realize Christianity is not merely, therefore, a religious thing. It is not a way of thinking. It is not simply the worldview to top other worldviews. We may believe all of those things. All of those things must be true. But if we believe those things and fail to understand that Christianity at its heart is a relationship with God as a child to a father, we've missed the heart of it. A Christian is someone with God as his, as his father. We are the adopted children of God. That's the language that is used throughout particularly the New Testament. We are those whom God has adopted, the, one whom God, the ones whom God chose, even knowing who and what we would become. Sometimes, you know, the joke is out there, the idea is out there that somehow an adopted child uh, is somehow a second-class member of the family. And that's absolutely and completely false. I love the guy who said, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, he says, you know, some of my children are adopted. I can't remember which ones. Because that's the truth. You know, I can actually remember which of my children are adopted. I, I confess that. But I guarantee you as well, the love of a father for his adopted children is absolutely in no way different or able to be separated or distinguished from the love he has for biological children. The language of adoption means you are loved, and this is the profound thing, you are loved by God as much as he loves Jesus. You come in prayer, therefore, to God as that beloved child. We too easily forget that God is our Father and that our Father loves us.
you know, I, 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 you know, I don't, you know, kind of whisper to yourself right now, maybe just inside your head or under your breath, my father loves me. And maybe say that throughout the day, your father loves you, my father loves me. Because that's the place where all prayer begins. You pray to your father who is in heaven. Some of us have sat in a class in which Eva has taught us how to read scripture aloud. And I want you to see what I'm doing here in that regard. You know, when you read something like this, the emphasis brings certain pieces home. You know, it's our Father in heaven. It's our Father in heaven. But you know, it's also our Father in heaven. Notice the remarkable pronoun, our Father. You know, again, we spoke last week about the pronoun, about how it's plural, right? And as we, you know, confessed from the Westminster Shorter Catechism earlier, you know, one of the indica- indications of that is that we are, we are to pray with and for others. But I'm not as interested in the plurality of this pronoun right now. I'm interested in the fact that it's personal and possessive. And yes, the grammar is coming out in me, but uh, hang on. You know, the God in heaven who reveals himself as Father is in such a relationship with us in such a particular way that we speak of him as our or my Father. He is ours. We are his. The possessive and the first person should strike us very deeply because this is a personal God. And with him we're to have a personal relationship. That is my wife sitting back there. It's not your wife, it's my wife. But this is my God, who is your God, our God, together. Uh, You remember what a pronoun is, right? It, you know, a pronoun takes the place of a noun, uh, whatever that means. Well, what noun does this our take the place of? What is the antecedent? Oh, I'm having fun. What is the antecedent of that pronoun? (laughs) You. (laughs) Oh, that's another pronoun. We need to get more specific. This prayer could, you know, Randy's father in heaven, Jason's father in heaven, Nina's father in heaven. It's our father in heaven. God is not to be understood as the one out there. It is not even sufficient to think of him as a father in a generic sense. He is your father. And he asks us to know him in that way. Imagine you're at some kind of concert in a fancy music hall. It's some kind of concerto, right? A classical, you got a pianist or a violinist, or are there oboe concertos? I don't know. But, you know, you've got the, and so you've got this soloist performing, and it's a phenomenal performance. And you're standing there watching, and you get to lean over to the person next to you and elbow them and say, that's my dad. Not saying that's a dad. That's kind of obvious. That's a dad. But that's my dad. The pronoun makes all the difference, but let's invert it because I think that's even more significant. You're at a child's recital, <laughs> and the child is nervous, and he's plunking around on the piano, and you know, he's hitting wrong notes and, and everything, and he makes a big mistake, and he takes a deep breath, and he perseveres to the end. And one guy nudges the stranger next to him, perhaps with a tear in his eye, and says, that's my kid. Not, that's a kid. That's my kid. Now think about that. It is God in the person of his son who is telling us, 
speak of this Father in heaven as yours. I think a little more gives life to my prayers than to remember I'm not just uttering words. And I'm not just speaking to a God. I'm speaking to my Father in heaven. I'm moved by the saints of old who have pondered this and found great security and encouragement in it. So I'm going to have to ask you to endure this rapid, um, um, uh, what should I say, uh, tour uh, through some old hymns. In 8th century Ireland, the 700s, a poet wrote a song that you're familiar with, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence my light. That was the, the poet's desire, right? And he goes on to speak of his trust in God, whether you know, he has riches or no riches, um, waking or sleeping, um, you know, he talks about good, good circumstances or bad. And oftentimes, right, we pray in the midst of circumstances that are bad. We pray from the midst of circumstances we cannot understand when the way is dark and confusing. How does this poet find the way to persevere? Uh, you've sung it before. Thou my great father, I thy true son, thou in me dwelling and I one with thee. The poet understood the significance of the personal pronoun. This is not simply a God. This is his God. And so did a German poet of the 1600s. So let's rapidly move ahead. 900 years, George Newmark wrote, If thou but suffer God to guide thee and hope... Suffer, by the way, is a word that means allow. Okay. If thou allow God to guide thee and hope in him through all thy ways, he'll give thee strength, whatever betide thee, whatever happens to you. And bear thee through all the evil days. It's an acknowledgement. We pass through evil days. It's a part of being human in a fallen world. And what can we do in the midst of those evil days? We can remember that our God is our Father who, to whom we can pray and in whom we can rest. He says, only be still and wait His leisure in cheerful hope with heart content to take whatever thy Father's pleasure, and all discerning love has sent. My Father sins. Notice that. Whatever my Father sends to us, it's acceptable. It's endurable. Why? Because it comes from our Father. No doubt, he says, our inmost wants are known to him who chose us, adopted us for his own. I once had to hold my son when he was very young, I had to restrain him on a doctor's table while the doctor put stitches in his head. It was painful for my son. It was painful for me. I, at least, though, knew the reasons for it. We don't always know the reasons. And so we, by faith, declare that we be what we believe to be true, that this personal pronoun matters. We did this last week, by the way, using another German 17th century hymn, What Air? My God ordains his right, holy his will abideth. I'll be still whatever he doth and follow where he guideth. I confess that's a hard song for me to sing because my faith is constantly struggling to hold on to these things. I often don't judge all things right that my God ordains. And yet, 
as the, as the hymn writer says, he is my God. Though dark my road, the poet knows that, knows that this is hard, but he also knows my father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. To whom? My father. Okay. When the poets of old struggled to understand the difficulties of life, those struggles resolved at this point that God is our father. They understood the personal pronoun. Margaret Clarkson was a Canadian writer of the last century. She dealt with chronic pain all her life. One of her hymns speaks of God's absolute and sovereign power. And she says, your voice commands the seasons and bounds the ocean shore, sets stars within their courses and stills the tempest roar. But we know that God's sovereignty has a dark side. At least it feels that way. If God is in charge, then why are our friends suffering the ravages of memory loss or of cancer or of mental illness? Clarkson lived that life and lived that question. And so she would write, Oh, Father, you're sovereign in all the affairs of men. <laughs> she acknowledged that he is the Lord of human pain transmuting earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain. How can she draw all those pieces together? She does so by seeing that this sovereign God is a father. And with him we can affirm that he or you hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. Underline all of this theological affirmation about the truth of the sovereignty of God when it runs headlong into things we don't understand is this reality that nevertheless whatever the evil road happens to be colored with God has never ceased to be our father and he holds us secure in his brace that is the footing that is the foundation from which all prayer arises we pray with a very personal pronoun our father in heaven it's not always easy so let me reference Rich Mullins here a more modern poet who in one of his songs says, as he addresses to, to Jesus, he says, do you remember when you lived down here where we all scraped to find the faith to ask for daily bread? Did you forget about us after you had flown away? Well, I memorized every word you said. Still, I'm so scared. I'm holding my breath. While you're up there just playing hard to get. And so that's our lament sometimes, right? In so many ways, Rich Mullins resolved that lament at the feet of the Father before whom we pray. And we pray knowing that there is one to whom we pray, the living God who is in heaven, that this is the one who is Father, and that more than that, he is our Father. And this is the one who is the Father. This Father is the same one as our Lord Jesus Christ, who near the end of his life, lifted up his voice to pray in John chapter 17. And when he did so, he said, Father, the hour has come. In the face of the most traumatic, awful reality that he could imagine, where on the cross he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He prepares himself for that anguish by acknowledging God to be his Father. And it is this Father to whom we can address in the same way. We are, as a Swedish hymn writer reminds us, children of the Heavenly Father. 
It's a father's love on which our prayers are rooted. We pray knowing, as she writes, that neither life nor death shall ever from the Lord his children sever. And we pray knowing that the one who hears us holds us more secure than no one ever is the loved ones of the Savior. Not yon star in high abiding, nor the bird in home nest hiding. Like Jesus then, let's pray to our Father in heaven. Father, I'm humbled by all of this. You know the way to which, the way in which these things that are so true and so obvious escape my hold and my grasp. I pray, Father, that gently for all of us, you would continually bring us into the presence of this reality that we would not lose the knowledge that we are children of a heavenly Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.